You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. This morning's passage is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, So we're going through this series through uh, this letter that this man Paul wrote to this church in a place called Corinth. And because of that, the letters are called Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians we've been going through. And uh, one of the things I love about preaching through a book of the Bible is that um, sometimes the temptation for churches is, well, we're going to talk on particular subjects and kind of avoid other stuff. The beauty of a book like 1 Corinthians is we go through and we preach what the Lord has put there for us and to see the full counsel of what God uh, is speaking to his people. So uh, I know Pastor Larry preached on a pretty challenging passage last week, and from what I saw, did just did a great job with that. So part of it, we want to teach you guys how, how do we process a real world through the scripture, that this book is not just some ancient book with some nice coffee table phrases, but it actually speaks into life as we know it. So today, um, we're going to be talking about some stuff, and as Pastor Andy mentioned there. And so when I talk about introductions and sermons, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit how you preach a sermon. When I was taught how to preach in seminary and other places, um, the professor stressed the importance of a really creative, compelling introduction into sermon to get everyone's attention. Like people are all scattered. Y'all still thinking about Thanksgiving leftovers and you're shopping to do after, you know, you want to give like a story or a hook or a really funny thing, or maybe a heartwarming thing to get everyone's attention. So here's my introduction for today's sermon. We're talking about sex. Amen. Let's move on. I mean, joking aside, the reality is this is kind of a compelling subject matter. Partly because uh, I think we don't really often talk about it in church, or if we do, it's kind of from like um, an like a, a, everyone's cringing kind of thing. Like it's not really that compelling, or maybe it's compelling, but it's awkward. Um, but we're talking about something that God has designed in a beautiful way. So I want to pray for us. But I pray with this understanding that even in a room like this, with just even a few of us here, I'm going to guess for some of us that topic. Um, you might be fascinated to want to learn more, but at the same time, there can often be an associated fear or maybe guilt or shame because of things in your own life, things you've been part of, maybe things that you've experienced. And part of my hope today is to introduce the good news of Jesus. It's not just for very spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual-looking things, but it's for the real stuff on the ground as well, and that's my hope. So can I pray for us as we ask for the Lord's leading in this time? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that you give us. And even as was mentioned earlier, that this is a safe place. And Lord, this is a topic that we look at today, which for many of us uh, does not necessarily connote the idea of safety. If the truth that would be revealed for some of us is a, it's a theme of hiding or fear, maybe trying to make up, whatever it might be, Lord, today would you bring freedom? Would you bring hope? Would you bring restoration maybe for some of us? Lord, would you bring truth and clarity and grace, God, and help us as we navigate through your precious word that guides us through life? So we thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we've looked throughout this letter so far, and we're going to see throughout the rest of it as well, Paul is writing to this Corinthian church. You might have picked up, these were not like the most behaved boys and girls, men and women. Like a lot of this letter is correction. He's just laying out point after point. Yo, y'all been doing this. Here's what it means to actually live your life. So the people of this church, this larger church, they've gotten away from the message of God's kingdom. And they've been living in ways that we would say are contrary to how those who follow Jesus want to be living. Essentially, they're not believing in the gospel. They're not believing the gospel. And when I say they're not believing the gospel, I don't just mean that message that Jesus died and rose again. You're like, well, yeah, it seems like they believe that. They might, but they're not believing in the full, total, whole nature of the gospel that impacts every corner of our life. It's, and that's important to get here today, that when we're looking at matters like sexuality today in today's passage, it's real tempting for you and I to view this primarily from kind of a um, moralistic guidelines approach. Like here are good things to do, here are bad things to avoid. And, and that might be part of it, but, but we have to know ultimately this is not just an issue of morals, this is really a matter of bad theology. That the Corinthian church, their ultimate challenge is they don't understand the true gospel. They don't understand. They have an improper understanding of God in his ways. And they're not living in a way that reflects that they get what it really means to have God as the ultimate meaning of their lives. That, that's their real problem. And we start in verse 15 here. Well, we see the issue specifically at hand. It says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So in the culture that Paul was writing to here in Corinth, prostitution, it was a much more culturally accepted practice than it is today. I mean, in our society here, it's not even church people who would look at something like prostitution and say, probably not the best thing for a moral fiber of our, of our, of our culture. Um, and you might have, even as you've read through different parts of the New Testament and other places, heard of these references to temple prostitutes. That, that in the temple culture, prostitution was also a significant aspect of that. So these temples, they, they would have dinners. They would host dinners. And then afterwards, prostitutes would often be offered and presented to the guests. You know, it, it would have probably been very normal for a man after a very long day of work to go visit a prostitute kind of to cap off their day. Because the marital relationship was viewed slightly different in this culture where you would have a wife, but that was primarily for procreation, uh, maybe societal um, standing. But in terms of pleasure, that's not really where you look. You look to these other means. So being, a, being with a prostitute in that culture, it, 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 it would have been looked at differently as it would might be for us here today, as we might look with shame and judgment for them, it was actually just kind of what everyone did. It, it was just a normal part of living in that city. 
It would be like, well, everyone's doing it. And the thing is, prostitution was so normal to the world around them that this Corinthian church was doing whatever they could to justify its practice, even for the people of the church. And, and I think it's just a helpful for reminder for us as we're trying to learn more and more what does it mean to follow Jesus. We have to be mindful to ask ourselves, are we taking our cues for how we live our life from the culture around us? Or is it from the ways of God? Even when sometimes the ways of God seem to totally contradict what the culture around us says is normal or even good. And in that way, I want to be, I want to be sensitive here. Um, I'm going to guess for most of us in this room, prostitution is not like your number one sin on your list right now. Like as you walked in here, like if it is, praise God you're here because this is really relevant, right? It's like sometimes you get a word like, wow, that's like, he's not. But for maybe many of you, you're like, okay, this is a good word, but oof, I'm glad it's for those people. It, I don't struggle with this. Um, but I would suggest that issues like sexuality are. Even if it's not necessarily prostitution, sexuality in general is something we think about. And so we want to ask ourselves, how are we forming our view on those matters, on those things? Is it by what God and his word says, or maybe it's from other influences? And that's what Paul's addressing in verse 12, when he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And what you see there in the quotes what Paul's doing, he's taking what some common ideas um, even expressed by the people in the Corinthian church that, that hel- are helping them to justify this prostitution and other matters. They're saying, all things are lawful for me. Yo, Paul, you the one who's brought in all this freedom in Christ. You just keep talking about freedom. We're free. We don't fall under the laws anymore. We're free. And, and you know what? Like a lot of things, there's actually a lot of truth in that statement. They're not telling a full lie here. One of the constant, consistent mantras that we hold on to when we know what it means to be in Christ, known by God, is freedom. I love freedom. That we're not rule followers anymore. We've been freed. Where once we were lost and we were captive, now we've been set free. And the thing is, when we think about freedom, for most of us, we probably think in very spiritual, lofty language. Like, Yes, I have been freed now in the justification of my immortal soul. That want, You know, that's all good. But freedom is also in very practical things. Like on the ground, how we live our lives. And guys, that means for things like sexuality, there's a lot of freedom. And that's, that's real good news. Real good news. Some of you are getting really awkward. And you're like, man, are we allowed to talk like this in church? This is really... There's a lot of freedom when it comes to expressing our sexuality. Because when you think about it, if you consider some of the ways that Christians throughout history have, have reacted to this idea of sex over the centuries, you could get this really jacked up idea that sex is like closer to the devil than it is to God. That, that sex is like evil. It's like an, a necessary evil thing that we have to uh, wrestle with in this world. Almost like, you know, before the fall of humankind and before sin entered, there was no such thing as sex. But once man fell in sin, oh, that's when sex entered. That, that's, not, that's not a biblical understanding of creation. And, and the church has often re- reflected a really, uh, I would say, unhealthy view of sexuality. And, you know, it, it actually wasn't until the year 550 A.D., 
that the church allowed the literal, literal reading of the Song of Solomon at the Council of Constantinople. Like they had it in their Bible, but it's like, no, we can't read that John out loud. That's, that's messed up. People are just going to start going crazy in the pews here. We can't do that. And if you were a Jew, you couldn't read the Song of Solomon, even though it was scripture, until you were the age 30. I'm sure there were some kids sneaking around, like in, in the bathroom or somebody trying, ooh, where's that? But you couldn't read it, like, publicly until you were the age of 30. But guys, we have to get down this truth that the Bible speaks most gloriously of sex, especially if you compare it to all the other world religions. That out of all the religions and faith systems in the world, Christianity has the most exalted, the most celebrative, uh, celebrated view of sex. That God created us as sexual beings. So what this means, whatever your youth pastor maybe told you in, in like really with good intentions, your, the human sex drive is not the product of some like cosmic biological accident. It's not like you were created to be like something else, but suddenly, boom, oh, why do I feel like that? That must be sin. Um, God thought that sex was beautiful enough to actually invent it, to create it. At the apex of his creation, we, we even see that right after the stating the fact that God created man in his own image, after who he is, to reflect him, the Bible goes to say male and female, he created them. God is saying your sexuality, the things that make up who you are, that also reflects my image and it's good and it's beautiful. Because our sexuality is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's not the only thing. Sometimes people want to elevate it to, that's all I am. No, 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 that's not the case either. But God's word teaches us that in some mysterious way that I'm not smart enough to be able to explain to you, um, our masculinity and our femininity, they reflect his image. That our sexuality has this very blueprint in who God is, in in his image. So what the Corinthians, what they're claiming in verse 12 here, all things are lawful for me. That might be true, but here's the thing. The Corinthians have taken what is true and they've twisted it to express and to justify what is not true, what is not good. As Paul describes in verse 12, what they are doing through prostitution, through these other things, it's not helpful. It's actually dominating them. It's controlling them. Their pursuit of their expression of sexuality in all their freedom, their desire for these things has actually uh, become detached from their identity first and foremost as worshipers of God. And and what is meant to be beautiful and glorious is what sexuality is meant to be has instead become distorted and harmful rather than drawing them closer to God. Good sex should make you believe more in God. Some of you are like, what? True. What's happened here is their expression of sexuality is actually taking them away from God. And Paul's words in verse 13, it reveals their incorrect understanding of sexuality in the context of who they were. It says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, quotes, it's just what they're saying. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So again, Paul quotes kind of a common sentiment that he was hearing. And the common thought in that day, and this was shaped often by philosophers like Plato, but was that it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. 
Like your body's one thing, but that's not really who you are. That ultimately your soul, your, your, your soul, that's what really matters. And so when someone would think of their body, they would think of it as a collection of all these different physical body parts with very functional understandings. That's what the body was in that culture. So when it's saying that food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, that's all those things were about. That ultimately the stomach just exists to be able to process food. And in the same way, people were viewing the primary use of their bodies and their sexual organs, they were seeing it primarily for the physical nature of sexual activity alone. That's what they thought their body existed for, especially those parts that work together for sexual good. They were saying, that's really all that it's about. That, that it's a physical thing. And guys, we know that even though this was thousands of years ago, I think we can still observe some of that incorrect understanding of the body and soul even today, even in 2018. That, that when it comes to God, Sometimes we hear this idea, it's just my soul that matters. And I'll be very honest. So we just came off Thanksgiving, and we, like most of us, stuffed ourselves because we hear those um, verses about your body's a temple, but we don't believe it during Thanksgiving, and we, we do all this stuff. And, and sometimes we have this weird like disconnection between our soul and the body. This is not just about sexuality. But when it comes to God, sometimes you hear this idea, well, it's just my soul that matters. It's just the things that I do within like the context of church. That's what God really cares about. But sex, that, that's, you know, that's something that's done with my body, but that's separate from my soul. And the soul, you know, God, all he cares about is the soul. So as long as, long as I do the quote-unquote worship stuff, you know, the other stuff that I do in my life and with my body, I mean, that really doesn't matter because it's about the soul. I mean, ultimately, isn't that hookup culture? That's hookup culture, right? You know what? I'm not really connected to this person. It's just a physical act. We're just sharing some pleasure together. We're enjoying life. We're not going to be like these kind of like rigid people. We're going to enjoy the body as it was meant to be enjoyed. But here's the thing, guys. Um, A division of body and soul in this way is unhealthy, and I would say every expression of our faith, but especially when it comes to sex, it can have disastrous ramifications. And many of us might have already noticed this, whether it's in yourself or, or in others or in culture around. I mean, probably one of the most practical, obvious ways we see it is through um, just the nature of pornography. And the thing is, when, the trouble with pornography ultimately is, is not that it's too sexy. The problem is it's actually not sexual enough. Because pornography, what is, it's a cheap imitation of the real, beautiful, glorious thing. So we think of porn as like, that's like the epitome of sex. No, that's like this jacked up, weird, black mirror, bizarro version of what God has designed in truth and beauty and good. Because what happens is pornography cuts out love. It cuts out the intimate communion between a man and a woman. Pornography and its expressions is actually too shallow. What it does, it makes sex merely about the genitals. If that's as if sex is just about genitalia colliding. Some of you are like, whoa, way too much imagery. But, but we can think that's what sex is, right? What pornography is. No, that's not. That's a very distorted off idea. Because what it does is reduces something that's meant to be soul deep. Go much deeper than just your physical body parts. And it makes it skin deep, really shallow. So what happens, millions and millions of people who surf the internet for pornography... 
They're not doing it to look into a naked person's eyes. They're not doing it to know the soul of another person. Instead, these models, these people involved are reduced to a disconnected set of body parts. I mean, to take it away from pornography, but a slightly, uh, well, very different, but it's kind of the same thing. I remember talking to a guy once in medical school, and uh, he was describing to me how they had to work on cadavers in school. And that most of the time, the face of the person was covered with a cloth. And what he was explaining, the reason why they did that is you couldn't think of this as a person, because if you did, it's really difficult to dissect like Harry, Right? You don't want to be cutting up Jane. That's like really, it's hard to like do that. But the body had to become a specimen. It had to be a cadaver. It it couldn't, you couldn't think of that body as a living, real person who once had their own hopes and dreams and, and loves and talents. A real person. I think it was really encapsulated well by this thing I read that someone else had written, and this is, this is what they wrote here. They said, A short time ago, I read an article by a woman who considered herself a feminist. She insisted that she enjoyed sleeping with men and thought little of sleeping with a continual succession of men. I mean, that sounds like freedom, right? That sounds like freedom. I'm not going to be encumbered by these rules. I'm going to be doing whatever I want. But here's what she shared. What for her was a growing concern. More and more, she said, the men she slept with had no real interest in her at all. They simply wanted her to act like a porn star for their benefit. They were using her to do little more than act out their pornography. There was no tenderness, no desire for shared intimacy, and certainly no love. They simply used her body as a means to a very immediate end. This, she saw, was very quickly becoming the new norm. What seemed clear is that a generation of men drowning in a cesspool of porn has a new set of expectations for what they want from women. They want women to subdue their own selves in order to act like porn stars. The women walk away used, feeling like little more than prostitutes. And obviously that's from a woman's perspective, but we know that can cut both ways for men and women. But, but that's what pornography and other expressions of sexuality that are mainly physical do to those who are still alive. It reduces the beautiful image of God into a collection of disconnected body parts that just have their functionality. But guys, sex as God created it is far more encompassing than a physical coming together of genitalia. Paul goes on to address this more in later parts of his letter, but what, what we see he's trying to do, he's, what he's trying to help the church see, yo, this division that you keep putting between body and soul, that's not how God intended us to be. That our bodies and soul are not separate entities. They are all part together, working together of what makes each of us who we really are. And as Paul says it, all all of it, including our body, is for God, for his glory. It's not just our soul. It's not just when our soul is singing these like praise songs. Like the entirety of our body is also meant to be given to God for our worship for him. In verse 14, Paul uses a deeply theological point to illustrate this. It says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Just as God raised the Lord Jesus' body in the resurrection, so will he also raise our own bodies. Guys, 
This is helping us see, this is so much more than just kind of a moralistic approach to these things. This is deeply theological. That our bodies and and what we do with them, it, it actually matters for eternity because they won't be destroyed. These bodies, whatever body God has given you, they're not just sacks of flesh and movable parts that house like the really important stuff. It's all known by God. It's all created wonderfully by God and it's all intended for us to worship him. And and this is when it gets killer. This is amazing. Our bodies are so important that that is even where God would dwell on this earth. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In verse 15, that the same idea is it says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That every single one of us is saying, we actually make up the body of Christ in who we are. This is weighty, significant stuff here. No religion would say this because every other religion says, God is removed from you. God is way too big. God is going to exist in this elaborate tower here and y'all do your good stuff so you can try to get closer to him and give your stuff and worship him. But there's no way he's going to come close to dirty, earthly people like you. The, the Christian faith is so radical. It says the exact opposite. It says this God loves us so much. He comes to this earth in the form of a God, man, Jesus Christ, to dwell with us, walk with us, take upon himself that very casing that is called our body and express himself in that way. And that when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, he left us the Holy Spirit. We had the Holy Spirit residing in within, within us. That God is not going to reside within some temple. And that if you want to go meet God, y'all, you need to find like that nice temple and do your religious practice. You can do that. But what it's also saying is that God has chosen to make his dwelling place the hearts of those who follow him. That's unbelievable. It's important. God places an extremely high worth and value on our body. And that's why our sexuality matters. Our bodies and what we do with them, it, it's, very, it's a very spiritual activity. I mean, guys, this is part of the reason sexuality is intensely spiritual. And some of you have never thought about it that way. And I, I feel bad for you. Think about it more that way. It's intentionally spiritual. And this is why Satan, he is so morbidly tantalized and titillated by sex. Satan, our our enemy, he's tantalized by sex, not because it's pleasurable for him. Some have got this idea that like hell is like some sexual playground and like all of your things that your mama tried to protect you from, that's what hell is. Um, that's, That's absolutely wrong. Satan is engrossed by sexuality, but so that he can twist it and distort it from its true intended purpose. So if you have this idea that Satan loves sex, that's absolutely wrong. Satan hates sex with an unholy passion. He would love nothing more for people to never engage in good, healthy sexuality. That's why Satan perverts sexuality. And that's why Paul is describing here in this passage what happens when the church allows and justifies prostitution. Verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
And that, that language, to becoming one flesh, some of you got married recently. Hopefully that sounds familiar because that should have been part of your wedding stuff, right? This idea that in marriage, it's not just a contractual agreement. It's two actually becoming one. But what this is telling us is that sex is more than just a physical act. It's actually a sacrament. That sex involves so much more than just the body. But it, it brings in the emotions. It, it encompasses the psyche in a way that we cannot fully understand. Making physical love fuses two beings together. So Paul, he's specifically addressing prostitution here. But I think the principle of what sexuality is intended for is relevant to all of its expressions. And guys, this is really key for us to grasp. Because I want to be really clear. We believe that the Bible prohibits sex outside of marriage. I think it's good for you, just honestly. But we believe the Bible teaches sex is prohibited outside of the safe, wonderful boundaries of marriage. But here's, here's sometimes a challenge when we hear that. We think that's really a moral thing. We even think it's a political thing. We think it's a way to try to control. But uh, it, it's not just a moral thing. Morals might have something to do with it. We might, but it's not just, well, good people don't do that. Good Christian people don't do that. Or, or oh, don't, don't do that because you might get a disease. Or you could get pregnant. I mean, all those might be true. But ultimately, we need to see this as a spiritual matter. This is a spiritual matter, one that penetrates deep to our soul. Because God, he prohibits sex outside of marriage, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And, and in the sex act, two people are proclaiming there is one. There is a oneness when in this situation, there's not actually oneness. But there's the appearance of that. And that's what Paul means in verse 18 when he writes, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This doesn't mean that there's no other sin that doesn't affect your body. We, we know there's plenty of sins that affect who you are, right? Obviously it does. But there's nothing that involves all of who we are like sex does. There's nothing that pulls in all the different fabrics of who we are like sexuality does. So Paul is saying, flee from things that are outside of God's good design for how sex is led to worship him. Some of you are like, wow, I picked a great Sunday to come. <laughs> I was just going to come in for this guy to tell me God loves me. And what the heck, all this sexuality talk? What is this perverted preacher? And <laughs> I'm going to guess, though, if you're like me, um, when I would hear messages like this, there might have even been good information, maybe even biblical information. I mean, you can judge that. I don't know, for me sitting there with a lot of the baggage I would bring in, I would feel pretty crummy, pretty miserable, because I think it would start to bring out a lot of the things I had not done according to what Paul seems to be instructing when it comes to sexuality. Like I had not necessarily pursued holiness, whether it was uh, past expressions of sexuality, my thoughts, whatever it might be. And I'm guessing maybe for even some of us here, you're sitting here and you feel a heavy sense of fear. Like maybe it's like really fear and that drives even things that look like purity. Maybe there's a lot of guilt. Guilt of what you've done. Maybe what you're doing now. Maybe a lot of shame. 
Maybe you just feel miserable about yourself, and some of it you didn't even control. It was things that were done to you. And you're sitting here, and you're like, well, man, woe is me. This stinks. (laughs) This absolutely stinks. I have wrecked this life. There's no hope for me. And if that's you in any way, can I offer you the pleasure of good news? The joy of good news. Look at verse 17. It says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What God is saying is that his design is ultimately, even through things like sexuality, we would understand that our larger aim in this life is to know what it means to be connected to the God of this universe who goes to great lengths to make us his. And when this language is very intentional, joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is supposed to mimic that whole idea of the two becoming one flesh. This radical idea that, that the Christianity is not some just some religion where you come and you become an adherent and you follow the rules and you drop your money in a basket and you go through your rituals. That might all be part of it. But ultimately, the Christian faith is this radical story of this God who came down low to make you and I his bride. To make us his. And, and I couldn't help as I was thinking about this, thinking about when I do premarital counseling with couples, or do marriage counseling. And we always hit that one point where I encourage, I never force anyone to do anything, but what I encourage couples, I'm like, you guys really need to consider if you're going to be getting married, you need to be able to share with one another stuff from your past. You need to be able to share some of the stuff that even you've been working really hard to try to cover up. People you might have been um, physically active with, situations you might have been in, behaviors you have that continue to haunt you, stuff that you just, you just full of shame. Like when you come to the communion table, you're always like the enemy flashes into your mind. And I encourage couples, if you're going to marry this person, you can't be forced to share something, but I would highly encourage you, share what is some of your deepest fear, guilt, and shame with this other person. And it's magical and powerful when I see it happen. When someone shares with another person that they want to share their body and soul and life with, and a person hears it, and you can tell there's some kind of pain, especially if it's a surprise, but they say, I still want you. I still want you. We're going to do this. Because when we think about that imagery, when we think about our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, wanting us to be united with him in this way. We see verse 19, it says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. If we think about two becoming one, usually we think an equal partnership. Usually we think of, we each need to bring our stuff. It's like not 50-50, it's 100-100. Come on, let's get our biblical math right. Let's make this a real marriage. We each need to give to make this happen. And when we think about our relationship with God, you know how it happened? From verse 20, you were bought with a price. We had nothing to bring. We had nothing to offer. And it was Jesus himself who gave fully all that he had. He gave everything he had. 
And, and you know, when we remember things like communion, we're remembering that when Jesus talked about the body and, and he, when he talked about spirituality, he wasn't some like removed, weird, ethereal kind of spirituality. It was in the ground, full of flesh and blood to the point where he shared his body with his followers. He told them, hey, this bread, this is my body broken for you. Hey guys, this cup, this is my blood shed for you. When Jesus shared himself, it was a very physical matter. Unless they thought that he was just talking a metaphor, in, in a few days they saw that it was an actual physical cross that Jesus was hung up on. His body was brutalized. His body was torn apart. Blood was shed. Spears put through him. Crown of thorns on his head. Physical agony and pain. This wasn't Jesus just like wishy-washing it away. Say, oh, okay, magical spiritualist. You're all cleansed. You're all forgiven now. Jesus gave his body for this to happen. And that is good news for us. Because for if you're like me, and if you have struggled in issues of sexuality, you're even sitting here in the whole message. You know it's not going to happen, but there's this weird part of you thinking, oh, he's going to ask some people to stand up and to share their deep... You know it's not going to happen, but it's like Satan's working in your shame. You can't even sit here and receive the good news, but the good news is that you have a bridegroom who knows every single thing that you have ever done, that you're currently doing, and all he says is, I give my body and life for you to make you mine. And that's good news. That's freedom. That's freedom that says you don't have to sit in these things anymore, but come to Christ and know the one who loves you at a dear price to himself. And that when you realize that, when it says you are not your own, that's not a restrictive kind of thing. Without Jesus, that sounds really restrictive. Oh, someone's trying to control my body. But when you recognize what he would do for you, you are not your own. Wow, he loves me like that. He's made me his. I want to invite you to that. I want to invite you to that. Let's just be real, 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 real. Some of you are married, and a lot of your challenge in your marriage is around sexuality. Some of the challenges in your marriage is because maybe you didn't get a real healthy understanding of good biblical sexuality. And I want to invite you, if you're married, man and wife, to talk about these matters, experience the freedom that has been bought for you if you're in Christ. Some of you, it's hard to enjoy sex because your whole life you've heard, oh, it's dirty, it's dirty, it's bad, it's bad. And one day, okay, you're married, go enjoy it. What? How's that work? Some of you, you're not married, but you're engaged in these matters, whether it's physical or whether maybe it's more emotional, maybe it's mental, and you struggle with it, what I would encourage you is you can easily hear from the church, stop doing that because that's what bad people do. Or you can hear, God wants to free you. Everything that the world has told you will free you. Express yourself. That'll free you. God wants to give you true freedom to know that you are paid with a price and your body matters. And honor him in the stage of life that he might have you in this time. If you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, well, first, you might be thinking, where the heck did I come into today? This is crazy. I thought I was going to hear some nice, like, little, like, what is those mini messages called? Something like that. And, like, come to the table. We want to invite you to freedom to know this Jesus Christ who would give all that he has to make you his own, no matter what you've done. I'm not just talking sexual stuff. No matter what you've done, he wants to make you his so that you can now flee 
immorality and pursue him, but be able to do it in his power. So can I ask you to stand with me right now? And I know this was some heavy stuff. I know this is heavy stuff, but I think this is the good stuff as well because in my experience, more than any other topic in church, when it comes to our sexuality, we are, so many of us are sitting in a dark corner by ourselves. We are shutting door after door after door to try to keep ourselves apart from um, anything, whether it's shame or fear or guilt. And what I want to offer to you is healing comes with the light. Healing comes with the light. And God wants to offer you healing. He wants to offer you redemption in maybe some of the areas that have always been a part of brokenness for you. If you're a Christian, bring that to the table. Remember the Christ who gave his body, gave his blood. This was not just a mental thing. This was a physical act where he gave of himself ultimately to the point on a cross. And come remember that. Remember that. If you're not a Christian, maybe today is the first time you would come say, I need Jesus. I want Jesus that way. And come receive communion as well. The way we do it, come up both aisles, take a piece of the cracker, dip it in the cup right there. It's gluten-free, so it's open for everyone. And do that. Respond to Christ however you need to this day. And for some of you, maybe you just need to receive his forgiveness. You've been feeling dirty. You've been feeling ashamed. And God doesn't need you to stay that way. He doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to experience true freedom. If you need to talk with someone, feel free to come to me or anyone else maybe you trust. We would love to pray together with you. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us as we... God, um, some of us, maybe especially if we've been to church our whole life, we have just never engaged in these matters before. And because of that, we have really unhealthy views. But we thank you, Lord, that even as we have unhealthy views, uh, distorted maybe, maybe unrealistic, and we've brought that into our life now, God, we thank you that there's, a new, there's new hope every day. So we come to you right now with some of our deep brokenness. Lord, some of us, it's a longing. Some of us, Lord, it's, it's betrayal. Some of us, Lord, it's deep hurt, physically even, that these things bring up in our mind. But Lord, whatever it might be, may it bring us to worship you, to be able to confess that you are enough, you are God alone, so that we could enjoy the things you've created, now worship them. So help us, Lord. Draw us close to you. Let us fall more in love with this amazing Savior that he would give his body at such a great cost to make us his own and that we would receive that and be experiencing life in you. So help us, Lord. Help us, Lord.